We were just talking a, a, a couple minutes ago about kind of the scale of markets, and I think a lot of people don't realize how big the computer game industry is compared to other markets. So, like with your recent release yesterday of the Call of Duty, like if you were to compare it to like a film scale, how would you describe? Well, it's interesting. I mean, games is it, what what's so. I think it's hard for people to kind of grasp, but how games are distributed and how they're consumed is is fundamentally different than some of the other entertainment medium out there. Um, and with games, there is no real sort of traditional secondary market um, that you would find in, in film or television. And so um, you'll hit like a, like a large publisher like Activision and our, our great partners like Atreyarch, um, simultaneous multi-platform release globally. Um, and so you're going to get a massive amount of, of sales, and it's going to happen in the first two weeks. And usually two days of a major AAA like that will far eclipse um, other properties that might release in the same window. So it, it definitely is a different, it's a different uh, rhythm, you know, sort of a different um, way that that content's consumed and distributed. And then, of course, the other thing to think about is that games are especially these, these, these large AAA projects, you'll spend 20, 30, 40, 50, you know, 100, if any of you play Skyrim or some of Bethesda's stuff, you'll, you'll spend hours and hours um, engaging with this product, and these are sort of evergreen, evolving walled gardens that are being released now, um, as opposed to a nice beginning, middle, end of a nice uh, piece of linear content. So it is a different way to experience that, and it's also a different way to, to have it distributed and uh, you know, reaching the consumer and the user. So do you find that when you're working with the audio and composing, that since you're kind of living in the environment, that you have to be a lot more attention to detail so that the user doesn't get just irritated with a particular sound that's being used over and over again or the same music? Yeah, I mean, specifically with music, this has always been a challenge because, I mean, we just recently did a... Um, Halo Wars 2, one of the last entries into the Halo franchise. And I mean, I think we were about 190 minutes of music. Um, we recorded a full orchestra at Fox, um, massive full orchestra recorded at Skywalker, huge production, and 190 minutes. I mean, this is sort of multiple feature films worth. It's of very production. Wagnerian. Yes. <laughs> um, and, it's, and the other thing to know is that um, this is interactive, immersive, nonlinear. So I, when I was at Microsoft, I actually patented a, a precognitive interactive music system with my colleague Robert Ridahall and some of my other partners there. And the whole notion is that we're, de we're designing systems to, to fight repetition and to create immersion uh, for the user. And so the, the player might move around and um, change the game state or, or change what's going on, and the, and the music has to adapt. And then you're dynamically mixing this in concert with design and with with dialogue so if you know it's not just like oh cool let's check out this concert it's <laughs> you know it is full dynamic dm and e all being dynamically mixed so there's lots of systems there's there's prioritization there's dynamic reverb i mean then with the design there's occlusion systems there's all kinds of things and then there's um, a sort of a, a tension level in a um, dynamic stemming and dynamic uh, submixing of music to actually fit what's going on dynamically. So this is a lot different than having full precognition in a linear piece of content. 
and saying, okay, I know exactly when this event's gonna happen and I can score and anticipate to this exact moment, you're scoring to the possibility and you're scoring to the, well, this general thing might happen. And so you have to build some pretty flexible systems to, to accommodate the gameplay. And so you've been using Nuendo for a long time. How did you kind of first get involved with using the Steinberg products for your production workflow? Yeah, you know, I really switched over uh, to Nuendo around the same time when I switched over to PC. Um, I kind of did a table flip on my platform and then a table flip on my DAW. Um, I, I just said, sorry, Apple, but after 30 years of logic, I'm, I'm done with you. Um, <laughs> love Apple, you know. If you're listening, Apple, hey. Um, but I, I, you know, when I was at We're Microsoft, happy for you. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I was at Microsoft, I was I got really excited about what my colleagues were doing there, and and obviously what that that all the teams are doing over there, and um, I just sort of got enamored with PC as a major audio platform, especially from the hardware standpoint. Um, and then Nuendo was the obvious choice for me. Um, actually, there was no other choice really for me because it had everything that I wanted. And obviously, Nuendo's very overt commitment to game audio pipelines is even just the most beginning steps were so appreciated and, and such a big step. So, yeah, I think uh, it was a good six, six or seven years ago now, I think, that I made that switch. So I remember coming to Microsoft and doing a demo of Nuendo when we first kind of did the WISE integration. Can you kind of share how a game audio engine interacts with the game and creating assets and content for people that haven't worked with a program like WISE? Yeah, well, I mean, for composers in the audience, and I think this goes for any content, um, the middleware, or in this case, WISE, but there's a lot of middleware platforms. I mean, that's the sort of electronic DJ that sort of tells the game what to do and when to do it. And as a composer, understanding that how your music gets integrated and how it gets triggered in the game is really the most, probably the most important thing. Um, so understanding WISE and ideas around uh, middleware and then having an actual DAW environment that could then just crosstalk between a middleware environment and the DAW. It's it's you know it was, it was mind blowing. It was like what I can actually just stay in this environment and open this environment and just kind of go back and forth. Um, that was that was just a major groundbreaker. And now we're into the second version, and I know you guys are deep with the white coats, and you're making the next version already. Um, but it's very appreciated for us that that make games um, because that is just a real pipeline, and most of our game audio pipelines are are PC-based, and, and so having Nuendo alongside all those other tools has is, is been wonderful. So you kind of started off as a musician, and how did you kind of transition into doing production? Did you kind of start off with games, or were you doing music first, and then did you do post, or integrate kind of all three? Well, going way back, um, well, I don't know how far back you want me to go, but uh, 20, uh, 24 years ago, um, I finished my undergraduate degree and my master's degree from the New England Conservatory of Music. So I was very hardcore on the music side, and I you know, played guitar, also studied composition. Um, and I love NEC, anyone out there listening from NEC, love you, love my degrees from there. I think about it all the time. They record all the concerts in Nuendo as oh, well, so that's, that's a good convenient. plus. <laughs> um, but I, I have a strong music background, but then um, I, started my first company around 1998 
and um, I have a big entrepreneurial streak. So the interesting thing is, while I have a background in music and composition, I've done a lot of management. Obviously, I'm SVP at Formosa. I was you know, doing a lot of management at Microsoft. I was the COO at Pyramind Studios. I was president of the Game Honor Network Guild. So I've had a lot of sort of like management, creative sort of executive roles. And so I've been balancing this creative side and more business side. And more recently, I think, besides managing people and, and, and having that more of a management role, I'm bridging pipelines um, where there's differences between technology and game pipelines, for example, and traditional post pipelines that a lot of people here in LA are familiar with. And there's, there's kind of a United Nations thing that has to happen because they're pretty different. Um, and lately everyone's sort of saying, well, we're all converging. Well, that actual convergence takes a lot of energy and a lot of translation. So uh, for me, I, I've tried to sit at all sides of the table. You know, I'm really comfortable sitting with composers and sound designers and dialogue and narrative experts, and, and those are my, my people. But at the same time, I can sit there and drive a P&L and grow a business and, and then manage a, a group of people. And so I've kind of kept all of those things going, um, which is interesting. And I think more people in leadership need to think about that. Um, so you kind of can do just about, I think a lot of times people with game audio workflow, they're doing dialogue recording, they're doing sound design, they're doing composing, and some days they may just do all three things at once and they have to kind of be a kind of a more broad workflow. Do you find more people being adept with tools like Nuendo, being able to do all that in one environment? Well, I think it's, yeah, I think it's very useful. I mean, getting back to the content side of it, other than the sort of philosophical side of it, um, What's nice about Nuendo is you, you have that environment and um, you can kind of have all of the core content that you want in a project in one place. Um, I think that composers who want to write content or make content for games need to be very hyper aware of the design, sound design elements and the narrative and the story and how music is being applied. So having tools that can kind of support that pipeline is I think important uh, for games. And obviously Nuendo understands that. So, so I've been, I've been talking to some different sound designers. It seems like a lot of them are now approaching it from a more musical approach. Like I remember talking to a friend of mine who did a, a National Geographic and uh, Expo in in New York City for the uh, Oceans exhibit that they have, and he said that you know he that the different sound design elements kind of evolved into natural musical keys, even if they weren't. Do you find yourself kind of integrating the sound design elements, thinking of it from a musical perspective now, because you have those tools as opposed to two different camps working on it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, when I'm approaching a project, and I'm most often now in some sort of creative director role or sort of you know over overlord, was it? Uh, um, <laughs> overarching, you know, not overlord, that's a joke, everyone out there. Um, it's only being it, recorded. Or, or so, is it yeah. a joke? Um, no, but I mean, when I'm looking at kind of the overall project, one of, one of the things that I often need to do is step back and help content specialists integrate and become unified to really support a particular IP. And that means bringing over some harmonic vocabulary or some element that you might find 
uh, from the music side of the world in to influence some very strong IP and iconic design and having those things work. Because ultimately there is a sort of harmonic framework that, that links everything together. And there's also uh, periodicity and frequency that you'll find. Um, I remember talking to my uh, colleague at Microsoft, uh, Christopher Melroth, who's head of audio on the, the Worldwide Publishing Group over there. And I remember talking to him about um, gamelan music from Indonesia and how it's all about periodicity and the lower tones happen less frequently and the higher tones happen more frequently. And I was like, that's kind of an interesting mixed design philosophy where frequency affects periodicity and then actually can cascade down into a mix. And then his head kind of melted and didn't, he didn't understand what I was saying. But, but <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but no, it was actually really, really interesting and pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I think there are strong links between music and musical style and a harmonic basis and then design. And I think any really good product is, is harmonically pleasing, it's, it's tonally pleasing, and it's organized in, in a way that is impactful. And that's where your story is driven, that's where your, the drama is created. And I think it's that use of all of that content together that, that means success. So when people watch you work in your studio who don't use Nuendo, kind of what impresses them the most with your workflow? Well, and again, I work with some amazing talent, and some of them have very deep sort of expertise in a particular workflow. And so I'm sort of like, hey, why don't you take a look at this? Um, and also my colleague Chris Larson, who's a senior sound soup on my team, who's been using New Windows since version one. Um, he's actually even, he's someone I go to for how do I do this, how do I do that? Um, when we're sitting down and we're actually looking at, at the workflow, it's it's fun to sort of change the paradigm a little bit uh, because there's some really deeply ingrained linear paradigms that work in some respects. But when you start looking at Nuendo, which is a more holistic approach to content, more of an event-based approach to content, um, it's people sort of are like, whoa, you know, this is amazing. Um, so I think bringing it back to being a composer, I think it's, um, and again, Nuendo is basically, how many people here use Cubase? I'm sure there's a number of people using Cubase, yeah. So Nuendo is just basically like super advanced Cubase. You know, I don't know if you would agree with that statement, but yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like Uber, Uber base. Is that, <laughs> is that a technical term? Um, so I think that people who are comfortable with that from a music standpoint, then you start to see all this other functionality, the full post-production environment of what Nuendo is. It, it gets much more interesting. So Nuendo's kind of just released a version last week that was, or I think earlier, earlier this week, about kind of integrating virtual reality workflows and tools. Do you see, where do you see that going for composition and game audio development? Wow, that's a big question. Um, when we talk about the big R's, you know, mixed reality, virtual reality, augmented reality, XR, just all, all R's, um, it, it, there's a lot of challenges and I think there's a lot of thought going on right now in, as far as spatializing this content and how it's delivered and, and how people are kind of consuming virtual content. And again, the interesting thing with virtual reality is it's hyper, hyper realism and anything that breaks that, that realism or that flow kind of breaks down the simulation. And do you find um, that the audio is way more critical to making that perception than people initially anticipated? Like, do, like I think a lot of people perceive like the video as you move in the, 
wearing the goggles is being important, but if the audio is off, it completely kills the experience for the user, right? A absolutely. I actually think it is probably the most critical piece of the pipeline that people are just beginning to figure out. And the more real and the better the tech and the more this is delivered in a more natural way, and a lot of very smart people are driving that right now um, in the industry, uh, the more immersive it's actually going to be. And it's less, I think, on the visual fidelity side, and it's almost more on the spatialization and audio side. Um, again, that's my opinion. Uh, but uh, I think there's work being done on both sides of it, but audio is definitely a, a, a frontier. And again, music for the sake of music has its own value, and it has its own integrity, and it has its own aesthetic. But how it's delivered and how it's integrated especially on new platforms is is just as important and i think maybe that's something for all composers to understand is the work and the writing and the the intent of your support of a story is very important but if it's not delivered correctly on a platform it'll just it'll fail and how do you manage delivering on multiple platforms whether it be like a cell phone to an ipad to a dedicated gaming system to a gaming pc what do, you, what do you have to take into account to make a title work with those different environments and playback systems? That is also a, that's a long conversation, actually. Um, I've been very fortunate because I've taken some big IP and I've moved it around to different endpoints. I've seen things go from the smallest sort of mobile delivery all the way up to full multi-channel home console and PC. Um, I took Halo actually to mobile for the first time um, and actually launched Halo on the Apple Store for the first time. And I was literally testing that in stereo on all these different little headsets on Android and, and iOS. And it was amazing how different that was. It was like this overblown mono. You know, these headsets are like, oh, yeah, it's supposed to be stereo, and it's not really stereo. Check out my cool stereo phone. I'm like, your mono phone that has a fake hole in it, you know, like <laughs> no names, no names. But, you know, we had literally like 20, 30 different endpoints. And then we had to sort of upconvert that experience to a full 7.1 mix for, for full um, console launch and PC. So it's been interesting uh, to take audio and have, have it be delivered. And if anyone's wondering what is the future trend or where are things going, it's definitely content anywhere on demand. Um, it's not so much about a locked platform anymore. It's more, I really love this IP, I want to engage with this IP, and I want to have multiple entry points to experience this, this content. And so I think that's an interesting challenge for people who make content, because if we're focused on a specific platform, it's almost a given that it'll be aggregated down to these different endpoints at some, some time. So when you start with game audio production, like 20 some years ago, you know, it used to be a strong perception of game audio music was, you know, that horrible sound blaster synth chip that was, you know, and it was always kind of perceived as cheesy and it's grown so much in the experience. Where do you see it in the future going? Yeah, I fell in love with all that cheesiness uh, back in the day. Vintage. It is vintage. <laughs> Most of the game scores that are happening now are are huge productions. And I think, if anything, you're just going to see the quality getting pushed. And I talked a little bit about this recently, too. I think you're going to see the higher end get higher, and you're going to kind of see the smaller teams and the more indie thing kind of push and try to survive. And the middle is not happening so much right now. 
Um, I think that for composers, there's an opportunity to really drive quality. But we're seeing a little bit of a bifurcation, I think, between um, this sort of really ultra high end and and kind of this you know small single person or two person team even. Um, but the end result is that the quality, especially around music, is is growing, and I think you're going to see more people wanting to produce music, uh, more live recording. Um, all the scores I've done, they've all involved huge orchestras and and like large ensembles. Um, I recently did a score. Uh, where we went to a remote place and we're recording these very exotic uh, cultural instruments uh, that we had to travel to and actually capture. So sometimes it's not just a massive orchestra. Sometimes it's going to a remote location and finding uh, you know experts in that one instrument. So I think you're finding more depth. I think you're finding more ethnomusicological um, opportunity. And I think you're just finding an overall drive in quality. Um, so we're seeing like the budgets for we're seeing games bring in so much revenue. So are you just kind of are you seeing a lot of people migrating from music and maybe traditional post production into games because there's more work and more opportunities for someone doing content creation? Yeah, I mean, make no bones about it. I mean, games is a growth industry. This is where it is absolutely growing, and um, it is very healthy. And all these different platforms are absolutely creating opportunity for, for content creators. And I think that you're seeing a lot of lateral shifters. And I think that's part of the conversation right now is I talk to people all the time like, hey, I spent the past 15 years working in television. Um, how do I start to understand interactivity? Um, and, but I think like for, from a composer's standpoint, good composers are good composers no matter what. I just think that um, with games, there's just a lot more to do. Uh, it is very technically demanding, especially some of the most cutting-edge systems. So I think as a composer, you want to think about it musically, but you also want to think about platform. And and that's the opportunity. And, and that's a little scary. I think there's a lot of people who are used to just scoring and experience. But uh, getting familiar with tools is is definitely becoming the norm. And do you see composition like being thought out more in advance of... When I go here in the game, the music changes. I go here in the game, but it has to have a musical segue, a musical transition to make that work, as opposed to like going from the key of C to C sharp instantly. Yeah, it's, 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 I think it's much less about that. I, I think the biggest challenge that I saw, and I was trying, actually trying to tackle this with my colleagues at Microsoft, was um, how do you create anticipation and precognition in games? Because with games... One of, the, one of the difficulties is that an event will happen and then you trigger after the event. Like, oh cool, I did this thing and then it plays the you did this thing music. You know, or I went to this place and I like, hey, now I'm hearing the I went to this place music, <laughs> you know? So do the, you sometimes find people giving like almost a hint of a game role ahead of time with music? Well, that's I, I think it. that's the the biggest uh, one of the bleeding edges right now of game audio music is how do you create predictive adaptive systems um, that can change content based on a player who's actively mixing the experience basically you know I'm when you look at big open world games and sandbox games or things that are less on rails and you give the player that much freedom that means that you have to take responsibility for how those environments are going to change how those sort of inputs come in and they can just happen procedurally or just you know 
emergent, you know, in an emergent way. So to create music systems that can anticipate change in the player and adapt quickly, and then put musical energy and emotional intent in front of those events um, with some sort of look-ahead mechanism and some sort of way to adapt uh, the composition, that is, I think, the bleeding edge right now. And you're starting to see those systems. And uh, when it's done well, it's like, whoa. I mean, because we all know the bad guy's gonna be on the screen before the bad guy's gonna be on the screen. You know, when you're in that haunted house. The Jaws. Yeah, yeah, or don't go in there. You know, well, we need the don't go in there moment other than a canned, you know, sort of stinger. Um, we'd love to have a more adaptive scenario. And there's been some really cool bright spots. I have some brilliant colleagues out in the industry who have just released a few things that have just like, whoa, this is a major step forward just in how they're handling that predictive nature. So in terms of like a dollar figure, what is a what is deemed a successful game versus a successful movie? <laughs> that's a that's a loaded question. I don't know if I want to get into like money uh, with folks. Um, I think that every I think one thing to understand, and maybe just just like any entertainment, is that games all have individual P and Ls, and they all have expectations, and there's a lot of research that goes into it there's a lot of marketing positioning there's a lot of messaging and you know big games take three four five years to make um, that's a little bit different than than features and um, I think that those are big bets you know um, but I think that if you look at a small uh, title that maybe was just a labor of love with a few people that could blow up and 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 make hundreds of thousands of dollars kind of an angry birds type of thing yeah I mean Angry Birds is a movie. It's a, I think it's a television show. Too. I mean, it's a, it's a wallpaper on your PC. It's it's everywhere, right? I think you can buy Angry Birds underwear, at this point. So that's that's like big IP that started with a tiny little app. So, um, that's that's interesting too. Is I think this is a very uh, powerful time for content creators because the content is going to be compelling, and if someone can think through that and actually look at what's going to grab the audience and be aware enough. And, and can follow through, these things can kind of blow up. Um, yeah, but I also think that established franchises have to keep outdoing themselves every year. So, but the return is huge. I mean, the large, I, I believe what I just read is the largest entertainment property in history of all of entertainment across every medium. This includes like Sanskrit tablets and, you know, <laughs> books is Call of Duty. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not Call of Duty, um, is Grand Theft Auto. I believe Grand Theft Auto V is the biggest selling property of all time. Something like $7 billion. Kind of in all of entertainment. All of entertainment. There's like the next closest thing is like 4 billion shy or more. I Don't quote me on this, uh, but I believe it's, yeah, Call of Duty is definitely one of those wonderful franchises. And there's some really big ones, but Grand Theft Auto is the largest entertainment property in the history of modern entertainment as far as I I know, if you look at it from a dollars and cents standpoint. And it's an amazing franchise. So so when people submit content to you, what do you kind of look for? Or what can make something stand out versus something that kind of may get ignored? Yeah, you know, I get asked this a lot. I have a lot of young composers or content creators, sound designers, uh, people in the pipeline who sort of say, hey, can you check out my work and tell me what's good? And, and they ask me, how can I... How can I win? How can I get noticed? How can I really do work? And I, I think that the most fundamental thing is to be true to your own vision. Um, a lot of young people sort of say, hey, look, here's my, 
my reel and they kind of do their like, I sound like this composer piece and I sound like this composer piece or here's my Elfman thing. And I'm like, ooh, we'll see, people could just hire Danny, he's a really nice guy. Yeah, the um, budget for know, it. Yeah, I, so it's not, or or you know, this is my whatever. Um, and it, that's that's a, it's it's a difficult thing for young people because they're huge fans and they want to emulate uh, great composers that are out there. But if you have your own sound and you consciously don't do what you love to listen to, but you separate yourself, and this is really hard. Same for players. I, you know, you get this with with players a lot. They just it's so hard not to emulate your heroes. But if you can find an, an, a unique aesthetic and you could find something that's your own and you stick to that, that will ultimately get you where you want to go. And it may not win for every project, but there will be a project where they say, "Wow, I've never heard anything like that," and we want to align that with our IP. You know, Ubisoft's been so great about that. Sony's fantastic with doing that. They're always finding brilliant um, musicians and composers and people to collaborate with. And the one trend is that these are very unique voices. They're not the same, or they're not derivative. Uh, so that's the that would be my number one piece of advice: is just do what you do. And uh, if someone says that's not for me, just keep going because someone will will love it. Do you want to open it up to some Q and A? Yeah. So the the question was um, how are how do people engage with Formosa Group and particularly our team? And you use the example of Naughty Dog. Um, Naughty Dog are very close collaborators with ours. We've done many many projects with them, and and that's a deep relationship that I think is proven over time. And we really value them. We really respect their their pipeline, and they have really come to respect and love our team. And so I think we're. We're always very open and very honest about what did we just do with them, how can we do it better? And then we're always looking at how we can help them push push the limit. Um, you know, we, we did a lot of great work with them on Uncharted 4 and then Uncharted Lost Legacy. Obviously, we got a lot of love from Last of Us and, and it's been announced that we are supporting them in Last of Us 2. And I think having that relationship with um, that team, Rob Crackle and, and a number of the folks that are over there, uh, they're brilliant minds, and they also really respect and trust us. So when they come to us, we really need to understand what's their vision, uh, what are they trying to make, and how can we best support it? And we have some you know, really deep, kind of open, honest conversations with them. But we also look at what we can do to push beyond what we've already done and help them kind of keep winning. Because one of the things that I love about uh, Sony Studios in general, and I, I work with Phil Kovats, who's now head of sound design over there, um, you know, he's got a really strong vision, and also Dave Morant, who's been running those service groups for, for a long, long time. Um, they have a really strong vision on always pushing the quality. They, they absolutely are like, quality is the most important thing, which is really pretty magical when you think about it. Um, and a lot of my, my colleagues and, and studios at Microsoft have that same philosophy, where it's got to really drive the quality. So when Formosa is, is is engaging and supporting them to do that, we come at it from the same standpoint. How can we adapt our pipelines to be that more cutting edge? How can we push the quality? How can we look at where we came from and how can we help them sort of win the next time? And it's a constant um, throw down, do your best, and then reassess, look at everything that we just did, and then double down and do it twice as big as before. So um, we are trying to push along with them to, to always be on that, that bleeding edge. It's tiring, <laughs> but uh, I think that's something that Formosa Group is, that's a core value. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. 
Thank you. Hi. Um, you mentioned something about middleware. When, whenever you were working with a, a composer that maybe perhaps had previously scored films but never a video game, maybe Gustavo Santolaya or somebody like that, do you, is there any kind of software, any or additional tools that you may provide them uh, in order to facilitate that connection between the music and the technology uh, in order to make music for video games? Yeah, and I think that the philosophies are different. I mean, a great composer who can write beautiful melodies or have a strong harmonic motion or create something, we don't want that to be upset in any way. And some of the big fear with composers is, oh, I, I need to make this, you know, use this crazy new tool or do something new. I think the best teams, and I think Sony has really set a high bar with that team and Chuck and, and the, the team at Sony on the music side of the world, they are really good at capturing um, musicians and um, having them feel comfortable and then bringing in a support team to help them with the integration and kind of explain it. And now some composers, I mean, I've had the yeah, I've run entire music pipelines end to end for many, many years. And the composers that are at least most open to the technical aspects of what's required are the ones that are such a joy to work with. I mean, I just did a great score with Gordy Hab, who is one of the best composers I've, I've worked with in recent days, and also Brian Trifon and Brian Lee White. And they are so open when it comes to tech and trying new things that just having that openness and that willingness to provide edits, do different outputs, um, you know, fit into certain um, technical things is, is, is enough. I think, um, because expecting composers to be master integrators mm -hmm. is not a realistic, um, I think, goal. But if you do have that, it's a huge plus. It actually may be the difference between you getting a gig and not getting a gig in games. Um, and again, it's not like, I know why is better than anyone else, because there are other people who, that's all they do is spend time integrating. Um, but if you at least know, well, I, I generally understand how these submixes need to work, how I need to extract content, how I need to deliver my cues, you're already way ahead. Mm -hmm. Because a composer says, look, this is how I work, this is my pipeline, and you know, meh, 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 <laughs> if that's a technical term. <laughs> um, that's not gonna get you anywhere, um, I think, in games. And, and I've seen composers just um, get much more into the tools. And again, I mean, not to bring it back to Nuendo, but I mean, that's that's one of the core values of Nuendo, is helping creatives get more integrated into a pipeline in a more seamless way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's where to start, yeah. One more question. Anybody, anybody, well, we got him. This guy. White sweatshirt. <laughs> that's my fast. Yeah, so going off the heels of uh, your last answer, I just actually switched from Logic to Cubase, but now you have me wondering if I should go to Nuendo. And I'm curious if you Same could... Same family. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm just curious if you would talk... You mentioned about that pipeline from Nuendo over to the uh, game engine. I was curious if you could talk more about that transition. Well, I would actually kick that back over to Greg and okay. go go hang out in in 17 over there and um yeah, pick his yeah, I would say for a composer, you know, like a lot of times probably more if you're a sound designer that you would take like, you know, thousands of different sound design elements over and that's what Nuendo would be more suited for, but probably for composing, 
most of the time you're going to be getting standard WAV files or stems of some kind, I would imagine that Cubase would be able to handle that quite effectively. And, you know, Paul will be, will be going over to stage 17 right after this. So if you wanted to come see it and Paul can answer some more questions one-on-one, -on -one, we'll be able to do that. So we just kind of go out to the main lobby and follow the signs for Yamaha and Steinberg. And so if you want to take a look at that, we will be happy to show it. Thank you. Thank you very much.